congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I, I think that our boys and girls are quite aware that in their little lives, there are times in their lives uh, when they're called to be still. Not just to sit still, but, but to be still. With their mouth. Maybe mom and dad are talking about something important, or, or maybe you've been just a bit too loud. You need to turn it down a notch, maybe, and maybe all the way down to zero, or at least a little bit. I know I've seen that in sometimes when I'm FaceTiming my grandchildren. They're so excited to tell me things. It makes it really hard for me to talk to my children because uh, they have so much to say. And sometimes they have to, my children have to say, well, now you need to be a little quiet now so that daddy can talk to grandpa for a minute or to grandma for a minute. So try to be just a little bit still. Times of reverence can be times silence, where even all the earth is to be silent before the presence of God. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Or where we read that we are to be still and know that God is God in Psalm 46. But there are other times when silence is not what we would call golden. And we see an example of how that can be this morning in the silence, or the silencing, of Zechariah. We actually have two reactions, in essence, this morning to God's good news, as the angel calls it. Uh, and when you get to thinking about it, uh, that's truly the way it is in life in general, where there are two different reactions to God's good news. Now, thankfully, Zechariah's initial reaction was not a permanent one, thanks to the grace of God. Thanks, that is, we even see later on in this book and in this chapter, thanks to the Holy Spirit at work in him. He undergoes spiritual discipline, though, by the loving care of his gracious God, but his initial reaction does speak to us much about what happens when unbelief reacts to God's good news of salvation. So we're going to focus both on Zechariah's and Elizabeth's reaction, but I have to admit, most of our time is going to be spent talking about Zechariah's reaction, but we will spend touch on Elizabeth as well. So first of all, we're looking at Zechariah's initial reaction to the good news that was presented to him. We hear about the good news that the angel spoke to Zechariah last week of repentance, of true change of attitude that would come as John comes and is preparing the way for the Lord. Changes of attitude towards God, changes of attitude towards family and their each other's members that way, and also changes within. But now we get Zechariah's reaction. How shall I know this? In other words, how can I be sure of this? Because I'm a man who is old, and so is my wife. And we see in Zechariah's reaction a, a double-edged sword. On the, on the one edge, he's, he's focusing on his weakness. And on the other edge, he's discounting the word of the Lord as sufficient for his faith. 
How can I know this? How can I know this? You just had the angel of the Lord speak the word of the Lord to you. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, this gospel. The sufficiency of God's word is really what Gabriel is getting at here. And the sufficiency of God's word is, of course, addressed often in Luke, isn't it? We think about the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And we see that in Luke 16, right? And, and there's the rich man, and he is in hell. And the resurrected Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. And in this situation, we hear the rich man saying to Abraham, send a resurrected Lazarus to my brothers so that they'll not have the same punishment that I'm having. And, of course, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. And if they don't believe that, they're not going to believe someone who was raised from the dead. Now, if you go to the end of Luke, and again, we see this, uh, how, how, in, how the Spirit is inspiring Luke in, in penning this gospel. You go to the end of Luke, we're at the beginning of Luke now, but when you go to the end of, the Luke, of Luke, you hear an angel saying to the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? Remember what he told you. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Remember what he told you. And later in Luke 24, that same chapter, how slow of heart you are to believe the scripture that foretold of this moment. So speaks the resurrected Christ to the two on the road to Emmaus. How can we be sure of these things? We can be sure of these things, of this gospel, because these are the things that God in his Christ said. And that's enough. That's enough. That's enough to believe these things and to be assured of these things and to know these things. You have the information. You have the assurance from God that these things are going to happen. What more do you want? What more do you need? This is how they're addressing, uh, the angels addressing Zechariah. This is how it's addressing us. You see, whether it's Zechariah who has an angel encounter him, or the brothers of the rich man of Luke 16, or the women at the tomb, or the two on the road to Emmaus, or any one of us, or anyone we know, or anyone alive, it doesn't matter. The good news of God's word regarding his saving work and reign in Christ demands, but also deserves our wholehearted trust. There's reason to be glad in spirit and in faith because the gospel of Jesus Christ sent by God is being proclaimed to the nation. The good news. You don't need, therefore, any other experience or any other provisions, or any spectacles, or stimuli, or any other proofs to undergird your faith in this gospel and assure you of this faith, or justify such a faith in this gospel. 
Because whether it's Gabriel who stood before the presence of God, the prophets from long ago, Moses or Jesus Christ himself, the word of God is worthy of our trust. Now the word of man, well that needs confirmation. But the word of God is confirmation enough for us to respond to it as it is. As good news. As gospel. With joy and, and gladness when we receive this good news. With a faith that glorifies God for bringing good news to our lives when there was nothing but dead to promote and to ponder. By God's grace, then, we're to use that word to understand the way of salvation in Christ, to govern our lives, to direct our lives. These words, these words of God need to be open to us. They should not be sitting dusty on a shelf to assess our lives, to change our lives, to sanctify our lives, to govern how we worship, and, and to do so with the assurance that or the assurance that God's word is sufficient for our faith, sufficient to make a proper response in faith to everything that we face. Now you notice looking at the other edge of the sword, that Zechariah's unbelief arises not only because he doesn't dwell on the sufficiency of the word, but he's also dwelling on the insufficiency of himself and of his wife. All right, I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. The reason, after all, that he doesn't believe is also because he believes that the good news that is being proclaimed by the angel of, uh, of change, deliverance, salvation is reliant on his power and his wife's power. How can I be sure this can happen when we don't have the power to carry out what needs to happen? Now, Zechariah is right about one thing. And that's that there is no power in himself or his wife. He's got that right. They are, to borrow terminology from elsewhere in Scripture that fits here, they're as good as dead. In order for this conception to take place, what Zechariah has to believe is not that he and his wife can be self-resurrected, so to speak, but that God can resurrect the dead, so to speak. This is something that had to occur in other times of Scripture, particularly as we saw before in the case of Abraham and Sarah. Hebrews 11 and Romans 4 both say that Abraham was as good as dead. But yet God was able to take what was dead and bring life. And that was the case in the vision of Zechariah. And really, such was the case that was presented in the only other place in Luke that we read about a vision of angels. It's not the only other place we see angels, but it's the other place that we see a vision. Because in our passage here that we read, in uh, verse 22, we read that it says, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision. Well, the only other time in the whole Gospel of Luke where it speaks about a vision is at the end of Luke, which probably shouldn't surprise us by now, Right? That what you see at the beginning, you see at the end. The women received a vision of angels. Chapter 24, verse 23. And they declared the good news 
of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in essence, that's the vision. In essence, that's the vision that Zechariah received as well. Good news of resurrection that points to and that is founded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Raised for the justification of his people, raised to deliver his people from death, raised as the one who's victorious over sin and death and Satan and cross at Golgotha. And our faith, just like that of Zechariah, cannot be focused. It must not be focused. It ought not to be focused on our weakness, on ourselves, on our deadness. That can't be a way of life. That can't be a way of faith. And of course, when we profess faith like we do on you know, Sunday night, we make that declaration, don't we? Everything's about God, and nothing's about us in terms of what we trust about ourselves. There can't be assurance of what can be accomplished in such miraculous, resurrecting, transforming, penitential, gospel way as the angel proclaims if our hope is based on our spiritual, even our physical deadness. We can admit to that deadness, but we can't rely on it. Because we too then would be left only in our unbelief, in our misguided trust in ourselves, which is the way of the world. It leaves us with nothing more to say than, how should I know this? Where can the assurance of this be found? Well, it's not in the deadness of my trespasses and sins and not in my impotence and, and not in what I'm able to accomplish, but only in what God's able to accomplish. Not just in my life, but in other people's lives to which we might say that how can their lives be changed? How can life come from their darkness? Well, not by their deadness but by the life that God gives in accordance with the gospel promises of his word in Jesus Christ. Don't trust in yourself to save you. Don't trust in yourself to change you. Trust that God can do it, because only he can. Now you have a double-edged sword in how the angel reacts to Zechariah. Zechariah is admonished and he's disciplined, and yet it's done so so that he might turn and respond in faith rather than unbelief. Right? That's what all Christian discipline does. That's how we discipline our children. We, we discipline our children uh, so that by God's blessing, they might find a change, they might find a turn. Well, that's what's happening in Zechariah as well. The angel acknowledges the unbelief. We see that very clearly in our passage. These things that are going to happen to you are going to happen to you because you didn't believe. So Zechariah is made mute. And why mute? Why is he made speechless? The passage says that, right? He says that uh, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Well, many reasons can be given for muteness. One of the reasons that can be given for this muteness is simply that the punishment fits the crime. The punishment fits the crime. 
such silence, after all, is actually typical of unbelief, isn't it? You think about it. When the gospel was proclaimed in the house of Cornelius, and you remember last Sunday night, uh, if you were with us, uh, you remember that we saw that tie between Zechariah and Cornelius. Zechariah was the Jew of Jews, and uh, Cornelius was the Gentile of Gentiles. Zechariah was one who was uh, uh, an instrument of the church, so to speak. Cornelius was an instrument of the state, so to speak. Uh, so there were these ties that brought them together. Well, in verse 46 in Acts chapter 10, uh, we hear that as the gospel was proclaimed uh, in, in the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, we hear in verse 46 that in response, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the tongues are spoken extolling God. Notice in verse 46, uh, if you're looking there, if you got your Bibles open, at Acts 10, 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues. Oh, who was? Peter was seeing that. Um, and, uh, and they were hearing from them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for for many days. But we see that by the power of the Holy Spirit that tongues are spoken extolling God. Not here. Not here. Here a tongue's tied. And the tongue is tied because that's simply what happens in unbelief. Because unbelievers don't speak. Psalm 116, verse 10 would say, I, I believe, therefore I spoke. But if I don't believe, I don't speak. I don't, I don't profess my faith if I don't believe. I don't profess my faith. I don't praise my God in faith if I'm an unbeliever. I don't. Well, I, I might do it in a phony way. You know, that can happen. But not genuine. I don't praise my God in faith when I'm an unbeliever. It just doesn't, it's just not genuine. I mean, at least it's, you're being consistent. I don't pray. I don't pray if I'm an unbeliever. And I don't proclaim him to the world in what I do and say. Now later, of course, when Zechariah's tongue is loosened by the power of the Holy Spirit, he does extol God, doesn't he? In verse 67, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Then he extols God. Just like when Peter hears the tongues in the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He knows that they are tongues that are extolling God. And so Zechariah, why is he getting his tongue tied? He's simply getting what he deserves. He wasn't going to believe God. He wasn't going to respond in joy and gladness. So he wasn't going to profess his faith. He wasn't going to praise God. And he wasn't going to proclaim God. And tongues are tied that way in unbelief. 
And so that makes for appropriate discipline here. Tongue-tying is typical of unbelief. You know, if you're doing a spiritual inventory of yourself, you ask yourself those things, right? Do I profess Christ? Do I proclaim Christ? Do I worship Christ? Do I take joy in those things? Jesus' enemies, when confronted with the truth, held their peace. Luke 14, verses uh, 1 through 6, talk about this. On one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and healed him. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or uh, an ox has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. That's Jesus' enemy. They're silent. When Jesus was confronted with the demon-possessed, Jesus met those who were mute, like in chapter 11, verse 14 of Luke. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the people marveled. On the flip side, if you do believe, Praise. And it would be inappropriate not to. Shepherds did that, right? When they had gone to see the Christ child, they went away glorifying and praising God because everything was just as the Word of God from the angels had said. And as Jesus was on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, his enemies said to him in chapter 30, uh, 19, verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, unbelief wants silence. They don't want Christ proclaimed. They don't want to praise Christ. Silence is the way of unbelief. If you don't believe in the gospel, you don't profess your faith, and you don't come to worship, and you don't pray, and you don't proclaim what the Lord has done in your life. Because you don't believe it. And you live like there's no good news from God and no reason for spiritual joy and, and, and gladness in your heart to live in praise for Him because you don't believe the gospel. You don't really think there is good news. Because your focus is somewhere else. It might be in your circumstance. It might be somewhere else. But it's not on God and His Word. Now, thankfully, that unbelieving reaction by Zechariah was only temporary. God used this tongue, time, to discipline somebody that he loved. And he did it to confirm the power of his word and the ability to do exactly what he promised to do. You're going to be like this until what I told you is going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. 
And ironically, the silence communicated to the people. They came to understand that he had seen a vision, and that that's why he was so late in coming back. God uses everything to bring about the good that he sets out to accomplish. Briefly, I mentioned we were going to consider the response of Elizabeth. Elizabeth, of course, has the reality of the conception at her disposal. We, we hear that, right? That after these days, Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept her, herself hidden. But she's viewed as a woman of faith. She speaks in faith. She speaks in praise. She's not left speechless like her husband is. She speaks. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. <coughs> Elizabeth acknowledges God's grace in her life. She sees how God has changed her. She's much like Leah, if you want to go look at that sometime, Genesis 29-32, or, or Rachel in Genesis 30, verse 23, or Israel in Joshua 5-9, Genesis 29-32, Genesis 30-23, Joshua 5-9. As she sees how God has looked upon her shame and turned it upside down. She's much like Mary and the women of Luke 24 also. She receives the word in faith, indicative of God's grace at work. And then she goes into hiding for five months. Now why is that? Well, perhaps it shows humility, perhaps it's a, a preparation for what's going to be revealed in due time, as we see in the next time that we look tonight, at the sixth month of her pregnancy. And it's often in Luke that, that we hear that what is hidden will in due time be revealed. Just, just one example of this. There's a, there's a number of them, but, but one example of that is in, act, is in Luke chapter 8, verse 17, where Jesus says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. And oftentimes what that is is glory, the hand of the Lord. And that revelation is, after all, the good news of Christ that is revealed to, in time to all people. Truly the conception is viewed as a reason for joy, a reason for praise, a, a gracious work of God. Elizabeth has been without child so long and views it as a turnaround for her. Which, you, When you come to think about it, was the very reason why John was conceived in the first place. Even for his mother, John is used as a tool of God's transforming work of deliverance for the sake of Christ. By God's favor, she too would know peace on earth in the year of the Lord's favor. Good news for certain, to believe, to proclaim, to profess. Good news by which to praise God in joy and gladness. And, and at this point, unlike her husband, that's exactly what she did. And I do pray that with joy and gladness you can look into your own lives and I and mine and discover by God's grace that God's good news that continues to be proclaimed in Jesus Christ is worthy of, of your profession of faith, worthy of your prayers, worthy of your time to praise God, and worthy of proclaiming to the world in everything that you do and say as those who believe that you've been called out of darkness into the marvelous life of Jesus Christ, that he's worthy of all your prayer, as those who believe. 
in the sufficient and gospel word of God to you and for you. It is a word on which you can believe. You can be assured of that. Amen. Let's take a moment to respond in prayer.